I was um, telling Donovan and Trudy here, I, um, I actually, many of you, or some of you may have heard me teach before. Uh, I taught through the confession a few years ago, um, but it has been a couple of years, and so uh, it's, it's uh, nice to have the privilege to be up here again. Um, before we start, um, would you take your hymnals? and turn to page 817. We're going to begin today praying together, uh, as we do before uh, each Sunday school, praying together one of the psalms. And the psalm I've chosen today is Psalm 92. We're going to be looking at the fourth commandment today. And Psalm 92, you won't see it in your hymnal here, but if you were to look in your Bibles, the, very, the, the caption for this psalm, which is actually in the Hebrew, is a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. So we're going to pray through the song for the Sabbath this morning as we uh, consider the fourth commandment. Um, I'll be reading the unbolded, and you all will read the bold. So let's begin with Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. The senseless man does not know. Fools do not understand. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning before we uh, begin looking at the fourth commandment. Father in heaven, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And even as we turn to your law, we pray that we would find new, new things that are new every day, um, things uh, that, that bless us and things that uh, uh, call us uh, to be more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Again, I... Uh, it's a joy to be uh, up here uh, teaching this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me well, my name is Lauren Clark. I'm a 
ruling elder here at Colleyville Presbyterian Church. That's not a teaching elder, for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, Presbyterian system of government. Uh, a ruling elder is like most of you, just a lay person. Um, uh, we are ordained, of course, but um, not in the same sense as the teaching elders who actually go before presbytery and, and uh, are actually a part of presbytery and not members of this particular congregation. Um, I'm actually an engineer by trade. I've worked at uh, Lockheed Martin for a, about 35 years, uh, mostly in, uh, I'm an electrical engineer, so mostly in software um, embedded software systems on the fighter aircraft, uh, the F-16, F-22, and F-35 aircraft. My wife, Lucretia, um, also was at Lockheed Martin for 25 years, um, and that's where we met. And uh, one little note of trivia that in her 25 years, she actually rose higher at the company than I did. She retired as a director, and I, I have not yet attained to, I'm actually a level below that. So. Um, I still get asked by people at work, even vice presidents, is Lucretia getting tired of retirement? We would, we would love to have her back if, uh, um, so she was, uh, she was very well loved there and uh, for good reason. I've been blessed. Um, we celebrated our 20 years, 20th anniversary this year. Um, so the Lord has, uh, has blessed us. Well, enough about me. Let's look at the, uh, let's look at the fourth commandment together. Um, again, I've given you a, a handout. I don't expect to cover everything here. I hope some of this will be helpful that you can read uh, as time allows. Let me start out by just making a couple observations, a few observations about the fourth commandment. I don't want to go into detail on these. I don't want a, lot of, uh, a long discussion on these. I just want to put before you some thoughts about this command that you can think about as we go through the lesson. Um, this command is very interesting. Um, when, we just, when we chose to kind of divide up the commands uh, between uh, Josh and Patrick and a few of the elders, um, uh, Lucretia asked me, which command did you get? And I said, I got the easiest of the commands and I got the hardest of the commands. I got the easiest of the commands because Josh just preached three sermons, three wonderful sermons uh, on this, uh, on this uh, fourth commandment. And if you, if you didn't hear all of those, I would strongly encourage you um, to get the recording or at least the transcript and uh, read through or listen to those. I think Josh did a, a wonderful job, and I don't attempt to just regurgitate all that he said uh, today. We'll look at a few things a little bit in more detail. Um, some of the things, of course, will be similar. Um, but there's also a reason why this command is, to some extent, a hard one to teach. And that is because of these three observations I'm going to go over now. Consider it. Of all the Ten Commandments, the fourth is the only one which is considered by many Christians to be either fully or partially fulfilled and therefore abrogated in the New Covenant. Think about it. How many of the commandments do Christians, and I'm not talking the un unbelieving world, of course, for the unbelieving world, none of the commandments are, are um, in play anymore, right? But for Christians, and I mean real Christians, um, how many would say, 
thou shalt have no other gods before me, really doesn't apply in this day and age. How many would say, thou shalt not murder, doesn't really apply? Thou shalt not commit adultery, doesn't apply. And yet, when it comes to the fourth commandment, eh, that kind of sounds ceremonial to me. And, um, you know, not without difficulty here do I say this, because some great thinkers and some great theologians down through the ages have held the position that this command is at least partially fulfilled in Christ. One of whom you might be surprised to know is John Calvin himself. This is actually where our church standards, and I in particular, disagree with John Calvin with respect to this commandment. Um, and you certainly don't say that without a little bit of trepidation when you're talking about someone of that uh, caliber, right? Um, so that's, that's one observation I would make. Secondly, of the Ten Commandments, the fourth is the one where Christians are apt to take the greatest care not to be too scrupulous in their obedience or in their observance, lest they be legalistic or pharisaical. You know, we, we don't really have trouble, you know, toeing the line and, and, and being, being firm on thou shalt not murder, or thou shalt not make graven images, or thou shalt not steal. But when it comes to the, the fourth commandment, uh, you don't want to be too legalistic about what we do and what we don't do, right? Now, what is the, what is the obvious reason why that's the case? I mean, there's a, there's a very good reason for why we're we think about legalism when it comes to this command, and why is that? Because of Christ, right? When Christ walked the earth, what command was he always getting in trouble with? Right? The, and, and not by the, uh, the Romans. This was by the religious leaders. Um, he was always breaking the Sabbath command in their eyes, right? So, um, there is good reason for being careful here. And I think uh, history has proven that we need to be. And even the Puritans, who are really the forefathers of our confession and our catechism, um, may have gone too far in certain areas, even in this area, as we'll look at today. Um, but that is very interesting that we're, there, we're much more uh, concerned about Pharisaicalism and legalism when it comes to this command uh, than we are with others. And then finally, of the Ten Commandments, the fourth is the one where Christians arguably differ the most with respect to its observance. I mean, even in the Reformed Church, even in the PCA, we're all over the map, right? If I were actually to go around and say, how do you observe the fourth commandment? It, it would be very different. Now, as I hope to, to talk through too, there are some good reasons for the differences. And, and I hope you hear that this morning. Um, but it's also interesting that uh, there is quite a bit of difference. Um, and I know a lot of that has to do with your background. A lot of, uh, a lot of people um, come to Christ later in life. A lot of people come to Christ from different uh, denominations um, or come to Christ in different denominations. Um, but... Uh, that is a very interesting point about this command. We don't seem to have as many differences 
with observance and obedience with the other commands, or at least how we say we observe the other commands, as we do with this. Okay, this morning, though there is so much that could be said about the fourth commandment, and uh, I want to focus on these six points. You'll see it in your handout. Um, and actually, we, we will not get to the six, I'm fairly confident, um, given the time. Um, but uh, we'll try to at least get through the first five, uh, although we may have to skip around a little bit. But um, we want to look at the text of the fourth commandment. We want to actually read what the scripture says in the fourth commandment. We're going we're to do so using both accounts of the, uh, the fourth commandment, um, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. We also want to look at the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, the, the Larger Catechism, of course, is part of our standards, part of our constitution in the Presbyterian Church in America. What, how many can tell me what the, what the constitution consists of in the Presbyterian Church in America? I won't put elders on the spot here. The constitution actually consists of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism, and the Book of Church Order, okay? And what is interestingly missing in that constitution? Where's the Bible in that, right? Where, where, we don't, the Bible isn't part of our constitution, and why, why not? There's one obvious reason if you consider any constitution. What does any constitution have at the end of it? Even our Constitution of the United States. What's that? Has amendments, right? It, it can be changed. Can the Bible be changed? Of course not. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is the foundation upon which all constitutions, whether they're ecclesiastical or whether they're political, um, are founded, right? Um, and certainly the moral law of God is foundational to all uh, uh, of the laws that we make as men and women. Um, so our standards include the Westminster Larger Catechism, but many times, even though there are standards, and though we're familiar a little bit with them, we don't read them very often. And I'm, I'm saying that as much to myself as I'm saying that to you. Um, and, the, and therefore, we, we, we do want to at least read through a few of those. We may not be able to read through every single one of them. Um, the fourth commandment has a number of different questions, more so than some of the other commands. Um, but we would like to read a few of those. So we'll do that next. Then I would like to at least talk briefly about the basis and the origin of the fourth commandment. Where did it come from? Where was its beginning? Um, and the perpetuity of the commandment. Is it really still applicable to us? Is it still one of the commands that God would have us to follow? Um, and I'm not going to go into great detail on that. Um, I would love to have the time to uh, go, with you, go through with you Calvin's argument on it that he gives in his institutes. I don't have time to do that this morning, um, but I have, if you're interested in that subject, I have pulled out um, over the years his applicable uh, the applicable portions from his institutes, if you're interested in that subject and want to hear what Calvin had to say. I'll, I'll summarize his position later on, but um, we certainly won't have time to go into it in detail. Then I want to look at um, Pharisaism versus Libertinism. I want to look at the contrast, and we'll do that 
um, by a quote um, from one of my favorite theologians, John Murray. Um, and then finally, we want to look at how is the Sabbath day to be sanctified. If you don't hear anything else in this, this Sunday school class, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified, I think, is the meat um, of what I would have you take from this lesson. I'm hoping we can get there um, uh, without too much delay. But um, notice uh, some of the theologians I'm including in terms of quotes that we'll even read this morning. John Murray, um, I, I actually don't have a copy of John Frame's works. John Frame is a, a little bit more recent theologian, um, and most of my library are more older theologians. But um, John Murray is actually a predecessor of John Frame. John Murray was um, a, great, uh, a great theologian of the 20th century, the middle part of the 20th century. He's actually from Scotland. Um, he taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for one year just before J. Gresham Machen and some others, including John Murray, pulled away from Princeton because of the liberal theology that was beginning and uh, founded Westminster Theological Seminary and, of course, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is part of our heritage. Um, but uh, John Murray taught at Westminster from 1930 to, I think, 1966, uh, so a lengthy time, then went back and he finally um, died back in Scotland where he was a pastor. Um, but I, I think one of, the, um, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century and worthy of your, uh, your consideration, um, if you've never read his work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, it, it really is one of the, uh, the premier works uh, on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we'll also look at him when we compare Pharisaism and uh, Libertinism. His, uh, his quote is, is worthy of our uh, attention. And then uh, R.C. Sproul. Um, I'm a, a large fan of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul passed away a few years ago, but his work with Ligonier Ministry, it's, it's, it's the 50th year anniversary this year of Ligonier, um, has been so helpful to so many uh, uh, people. And the Church of Christ has benefited so much, especially the Reformed Church, um, introducing the broad evangelical church to reform theology. Um, uh, very few have done it as well as R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul is actually more a philosopher um, than he was a theologian, although he was a great th uh, a theologian as well, and he was a pastor. Um, and then finally, we don't have time to get to him, but the question of should government assist in sanctifying the Lord's Day. Now, you realize why I'm probably not going to get to this. This would be a real sticky subject, wouldn't it? Um, but it's, it's worthy of your attention, and I've provided a few quotes from Abraham Kuyper, the great um, statesman from the Netherlands. Um, a couple of years ago, Josh actually taught in Sunday school his lectures on Calvinism, and uh, um, he, was a, he was a great statesman. He was actually, um, he started a political party, the Anti-Revolutionist Party. Um, that party uh, uh, came to the fore, and he was actually elected Prime Minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905. Um, he, was, he started a, a, a newspaper. Um, he started the Free University of Amsterdam, um, which is, by the way, the alma mater of R.C. Sproul. Um, and... Uh, uh, many other things, but um, he has some wonderful uh, thoughts concerning government's role in 
sanctifying or setting apart the Sabbath day. Um, probably won't be able to get to those, but um, I, they're, they're there in your handout for you. Okay, let's start by looking at the, the scripture of the commandments. We're going to look at both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. What is the difference? Why do we have two statements of the law in scripture? Exodus 20 was given when? At Sinai. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They wandered in the wilderness a little bit. They came, settled in front of Mount Sinai. Moses went up and was given the law. The ten words or ten commandments inscribed by the finger of God on tablets of stone. That should tell you something uh, about all ten. Um, but what about Deuteronomy? Why did we need a repetition of the giving of the law? When was Deuteronomy actually given? Anybody know that? That's probably a little less familiar. Yes, Jeff? After God's judgment on the first generation, at Sinai, the first generation received the law, right? But they refused to go into the promised land. God judged them. That generation died. And this was the repetition of the law to their children. Okay, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And, and, and remember, holy means what? Set apart. If you, whenever you look at the word holy, whenever you work, see the word sanctify, think, set apart. That's very important. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. As Josh said in one of his sermons, Sabbath is simply um, from the Hebrew meaning rest. It just means rest. We could translate this, but the seventh day is a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, made it set apart. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Notice the slight differences here in the retelling of the, the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now a few quick observations here. What's different about the two tellings of the law? Obviously, the first starts with remember. The second starts with observe. We might, we might think that Deuteronomy kind of goes away from the remember part. 
Um, except that if you look at the, the words after, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. In other words, there still is that calling back or, or, or reminder that God, this is something God has already commanded you. Now, what would your first response to the word remember be? What were, why, why was this command um, put in the words that you're to remember it as opposed to the other commands? Why would the Israelites be able to remember this command? Creation, right? I heard creation. I'm not sure who said it, but that's, that's exactly it. The, the most obvious reason for remember here is that this was a creation ordinance. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But this was actually given at creation. Therefore, the, the, uh, um, the Jews already knew about this. What other command was prior to uh, Sinai? What command was given uh, after Noah came out of the ark? Uh, well, actually, be fruitful and multiply is back in Genesis. But remember, um, the capital, what we look back to for capital punishment was, uh, was given after Noah came out of the ark. Um, he that sheds uh, the blood of man by blood, uh, by man shall his blood be shed. So we have a, we have a hint at the command against murder um, there. But very, very clearly, the fourth commandment was given uh, at creation at the time of creation, and so they would have been very familiar with this. Um, notice, too, the fourth commandment is obviously a command to rest on one day, but it's also a command to labor on six. Did you notice that? Most people wouldn't even think about labor in this command other than um, that it's juxtaposed with, um, with rest. But notice the command itself, six days you shall labor. Six days you shall labor. And notice, too, that this is prior, when this was first given um, as a creation ordinance, this is prior to the fall. So labor is, a, labor is one of the institutions that was given prior to the fall, and it's a good thing. Um, and it's also something that's commanded. Um, we break the fourth commandment, if we refuse to work. Apostle Paul says, if a man refuses to work, he should not eat. Um, this is an ordinance, not only in the Decalogue, um, but from creation, that we must work as well. But we have that, um, that wonderful opportunity to have one day in seven um, to break from that work and to rest. Uh, another point I, I would, I, I would, would uh, uh, focus your attention on is there's no elaboration in this command of the, of the Sabbath rest um, other than it's being to the Lord and it's contrasted with labor and work. In other words, God doesn't tell us how to rest in this command, does he? He just says rest, but he says rest to the Lord. Set it apart as holy to the Lord. We'll have much more to say about that in a few minutes. 
Um, but I want you to see the simplicity of the command. Um, and I think, again, this is just a hint for what's to come. I think sometimes the Puritans, in their zeal for keeping the law of God, many times went beyond what they should have because they didn't recognize the simplicity of the law. And then finally, interestingly enough, nowhere in this command is the assembling for the worship of God explicitly mentioned. Did you ever think about that? None of us would disagree that that's, we're called to do that. But interestingly enough, we're not called to do it explicitly in this command, are we? Now, we'll talk about why we, uh, it is implied in this command, and it certainly is, and those that know me well in my 35 years here at this church know that I take worship on the Lord's Day very seriously. My point in saying this is not to say that that's not important on Sunday, um, but it is interesting to note what the command does and does not say. Okay, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the basic commands from Scripture. Let's look at the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm only going to read um, a few of the sections due to time. I want to read one, the, the, the question 116, and I want to read question 119. Those are the basic, what is required and what is forbidden. 116, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such times as he hath appointed in his word. Expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. And so we see the divines of Westminster, what they uh, thought about the perpetuity of the command, that this was binding not only on the old covenant uh, believers, but on the new covenant as well, and certainly until Christ returns. Um, question 119, what are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omissions of the duties required that we've just read all careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of them, and being weary of them, all profaning the day by idleness, and doing that which is in itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments. Is that where it stops? About all our worldly employments and recreations. That word right there is a big rub. Um, we'll talk about that uh, uh, briefly. But worldly employments and recreations. Okay, let's look quickly at the basis uh, or origin of this law. And I, again, we've talked a little bit already about it. But obviously, the Sabbath was instituted at creation, just like labor, just like marriage, just like fruitfulness, someone mentioned that, be fruitful and multiply, all those institutions were given at creation, and so was the Sabbath day. John Murray says this, he says, sin does not abrogate creation ordinances, and redemption does not make superfluous 
their obligation and fulfillment. In other words, how does Christ's redemptive work make void or make uh, obsolete God's command at creation to rest on one of the, the seven days of the week? Certainly, there is, a, there is a sense in which Christ allows us to rest from our works of our own works of righteousness and rest in his works alone. That's a, that's a wonderful, beautiful um, principle. But that's really not what the command is getting at when it says rest one day of the week. I really like Josh's um, point about the way God, when he created man, um, and when he created the world, uh, created time, as it were. And he, as the creator of time, knew how best for us to handle time, to, to, to live within time. Um, uh, and, and he's done so graciously even in his commands. Um, did you ever think about it that um, even if man had not fallen, man still would have been required of God to work on six days and to rest on one. Uh, a very, very uh, interesting point. I have included this in your handout if you want to follow along. John Murray says, the argument for the perpetuity of the Sabbath rests, uh, of the Sabbath rest stands or falls with the question of divine institution and obligation. Whatever expediency, that's a word we just love in this day, um, which, which really means what's to our advantage or what's convenient to us. Whatever expediency might dictate, it can never carry the sanction of law. And it cannot bind the conscience of men. There is no law of expediency. It changes with the circumstances. And what changes with circumstance is not universal and perpetual law. The recognition of this is necessary not only to guard law, it is also necessary to guard liberty. If we once allow expediency to dictate law, then we are on the road to tyranny. And conscience is no longer captive to the law of God, but to the variable fancies of men. There's a lot of things I wish our, our own government in the United States would recognize. This is one of them. Um, expediency. What's convenient? I would, I, would, I would call you, I would call myself, as we look at the fourth commandment, don't look at it in terms of what's easy, what's expedient. Um, what exceptions do I have to make? And there are exceptions, don't get me wrong. Um, but what does God say? What is his law? Um, once we turn away from law, um, and similar to our own government, uh, which has turned away from law, which even turns away from its own constitution, um, once we do that, we are on very slippery ground indeed. That's all we have time to say about the, uh, the basis and, and perpetuity of the command. 
Let me also read for you uh, John Murray's uh, beautiful uh, description of Pharisaicalism versus Libertinism. Um, and I, I think I included this in your handout as well so you can follow along. Um, but when you consider, uh, you know, even when Christ walked the earth and, and encountered Pharisees, that um, it, it almost boggles the mind to think how far they had fallen when you could actually interpret the fourth commandment to mean that I can't, that Christ couldn't heal a, a, a disabled person on the Sabbath day. I mean, how far do you have to go to actually think that healing on the Sabbath day is wrong? But what it really shows is they weren't really following the law. They were following their traditions, which went far beyond the law. And that's the point Murray's going to make here. Let's listen to John Murray. It is true that we must guard against encroachments which proceed from Pharisaical imposition. This is self-righteousness and will worship. It completely frustrates the divine design. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, as our Lord said. When we encumber the institutions of God with accretions or additions of our own invention, we not only pervert His law, but we impugn or we challenge His wisdom and usurp His authority. We make ourselves lawgivers and forget that there is only one lawgiver. Not only the wisdom, but the holiness of God is reflected in what He has not required as well as in what He does demand. And if we add to His law, then we suppose ourselves to be better and wiser than God. And that is the essence of impiety and lawlessness. A very strong statement against Pharisaicalism. And, and a very, very appropriate, and one that Christ was really coming up against when he walked this earth. However, just because we turn from Pharisaicalism doesn't mean we leap into libertinism, and that's a little bit of an archaic word, but um, a word meaning we basically throw off all moral constraints, right? We must not, however, fall into libertinism because we want to avoid Pharisaism. The opponents of Sabbath observance and of its complementary restrictions like to peddle the charge of Pharisaism when efforts are made to preserve the Sabbath from desecration and to maintain its sanctity. We should not be disturbed by this type of vilification. Why should insistence upon Sabbath observance be Pharisaical or legalistic? The question is, is it a divine ordinance? If it is, then adherence to it is not legalistic any more than adherence to other commandments of God, right? Are we, are we charged with legalism if we are meticulously honest? Are we, if we're jealous not to deprive our neighbor unjustly of one penny, which is his, and are therefore meticulous in the details of money transactions, are we necessarily legalistic? Would we call ourselves that? Are we to be charged with legalism if we are scrupulously chaste and condemn the very suggestions or gestures of lewdness? How distorted our conception of the Christian ethic and of the demands of holiness has become if we associate concern for the details of integrity with Pharisaism and legalism. Why then 
Should insistence upon Sabbath observance be legalism and Pharisaism? This charge can appear plausible only because our consciences have become insensitive to the demands of the sanctity which the ordinance entails. The charge really springs from failure to understand what the liberty of the Christian man is. The law of God is the royal law of liberty, and liberty consists in being captive to the word of God, or to the word and law of God. All other liberty is not liberty, but the thraldom of servitude to sin. A profound statement, I think, one worthy um, to keep in your back pocket, because we're all susceptible to it. Um, we we want to avoid one extreme, and we go to another. Um, has God said? Who also asked that question? Famously, in the Garden of Eden, right? The devil. Has God not said? Um, that really is the question for us. Has he commanded or has he not? Um, but that still doesn't answer the question that, that I'm sure is, you know, biting at everybody's uh, uh, at conscience when they consider the fourth commandment. How do, how is the Lord's day to be sanctified? That is a, that is a real question and one um, that is worthy of attention and we'll do that with the time remaining today. Here's what the Westminster Larger Catechism says with respect to how the Lord's Day is to be sanctified. The Sabbath or the Lord's Day, this is uh, question 117, is to be sanctified by an holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful, and making it our delight to spend the whole time except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercise of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonally dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. And there again, you see... Um, that word and recreations, which has, uh, which has been such a difficult word uh, in the church down through the ages since the time of this writing. Um, what are we to make of that? Well, interestingly, R.C. Sproul does a great job here. I'm not gonna read through his, uh, his quotes, but um, he notes a very distinct difference between the Puritan position on the Sabbath and the continental position on the Sabbath, which was the, the primary position of the Sabbath that the continent of Europe held. So ones like Calvin and others um, held on the Sabbath day in, in, in difference to, the, uh, to the, the Puritan position. The Puritan position was basically this. Um, the only things appropriate for, for Sabbath, other than the works of necessity and mercy, they're obviously things you have to do um, as humans to, to live. Um, but other than that, all that was uh, uh, to be done on, on the Sabbath was worship, um, was worship of God, or as the, uh, the, the question that we've just read uh, states it, the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship. 
Now, that doesn't mean all of it is public worship. It's private as well. Um, why did they include recreation in there? It's interesting. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul gives a, almost a humorous account. Um, during the reign of Bloody Mary, uh, John Knox, who was from Scotland, actually fled um, over to the, to the continental Europe. And he was in Germany for a little bit. He finally found his way to Geneva. And he was aghast when he came to Geneva and found John Calvin and his family lawn bowling on the Sabbath. Um, that liberal John Calvin. Um, but it, it pointed out the difference in the positions. John Calvin held a much different position on the Sabbath than did the Puritans. And here's, here's really the basis of that, the argument of the Puritans. It really comes not from, as we saw, the, the commandment itself, but it comes from a beautiful passage on the Sabbath, and that is Isaiah chapter 58. And Isaiah 58 is a passage that, that Josh used as one of his texts for one, for one of the sermons. Um, I think it's one of the most beautiful passages on the Sabbath. If we don't deal with this passage, we haven't done uh, full justice uh, to this, uh, this command in God's word, I don't think. Isaiah says this in, in chapter 58, verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. One of the, one of the most beautiful commentaries on the fourth commandment. And yet, how did the Puritans interpret this, this command? Or this, uh, they looked at the words from doing your pleasure on my holy day as the same thing as recreations. That's, what, that's why they're opposed. In fact, much of the wording, even of the, of the larger catechism question, is right from this, this passage. R.C. Sproul says it's interesting, though. Was Isaiah's purpose in giving this, uh, this interpretation of the fourth commandment to give a new commandment? Was he, was he really attempting to add to what was, was, was given in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment, of course, said um, not to work, to set apart the day to the Lord. But did it say anything about recreation or pleasures? Was it really Isaiah's purpose to actually expand this? Um, R.C. Sproul says, no, I don't think it was. What Isaiah was really saying, in fact, the, 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 the prophets themselves didn't act as lawgivers. The prophets asked, acted as, um, you know, attorneys. They were, they were prosecuting attorneys of Israel, right? They were calling them back to the law. And, and even so here, he was calling Israel back to the law Doing pleasure on the day wasn't a reference to recreation as much as it, they were doing what they pleased. They were working. They were making money. They were doing commerce. And that's what they wanted to do. That was their pleasure, right? And I think it's very important that we understand that. 
Now, having said that, I must look at our society today. And when you consider recreation, which by the way is two words glommed together, right? Recreation. Um, we do it for refreshment, much of which the fourth commandment was given for. We look at our society today, do we see recreation as unto the Lord? As set apart to him on Sunday? Is that why we have a Super Bowl? Is that why World Series goes right through the weekend? Is that why every major or minor golf tournament ends on Sunday? Because we're setting that apart to God? I think the Puritans did have some wisdom here when they were concerned about recreations because they knew the heart of man, right? They knew the heart of men and women, that we are prone, once we start enjoying recreations, to stop the setting apart to God. And as we close, that's what I want to leave us with. I want you to look in your handout at the, the quote by John Murray with respect to sanctifying the day, because this is the heart of the command. Josh didn't stand up and preach sermons that said, you can do this, 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 and this. Those are all okay on Sunday. These you can't do, and I'm not going to do that either. And God didn't give the command in that form wisely. Right? Wisely because he gave it, of course, um, by definition. What I am going to try to put forward here is, how do you look at the Sabbath principle? Do you look at it first and foremost as, what can I not do on the Sabbath? Or do you look at it as, what an opportunity I have to set a day apart to the Lord? Whether it's in worship which of course is a, a, a wonderful way to set apart the day to the Lord, and the church has done it throughout its history, or whether it's in things that are pleasurable to us as we enjoy his creation, as we enjoy his works, as we enjoy fellowship with other believers. What are we really trying to do? John Murray says there are two elements in the word sanctify. It means, first of all, to set apart. If set apart, it is distinguished from something else. The Sabbath day is different from every other day, and to obliterate this distinction, either in thought or practice, is to destroy what is of the essence of the institution. The recognition of distinction is inseparable to observance. Too frequently among Christians, refraining from certain practices is merely a matter of custom. I go to church because my parents went to church. I've always gone to church. But notice what happens. There is perchance adherence to honored tradition, but it is the shell without the kernel. Truly they do not do certain things, but this abstinence does not spring from a well-grounded sense of sanctity. And the consequence is that when solicitation or temptation to deviate from custom confronts them, there is no recoil dictated by principle. They are victims of circumstance. They had no principle here, and thus, when things come along, they go with the flow. And boy, our culture gives you a lot of opportunity to go with the flow on Sunday. It needs to be underlined that 
Sabbath observance soon becomes obsolete if it does not spring from the sense of sanctity generated and nourished in us by the recognition that God has set apart one day in seven. And therefore we do it as well at his command. The second element of sanctity is that the difference which God has ordained is a difference of a special kind. The Sabbath is set apart to the Lord. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It is a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Our rest of the Sabbath is not one of inaction or idleness, far less of sloth. It is the rest of another kind of activity. It is indeed rest from the ordinary employments of the other six days. There is a cessation from the activity and the labor it entails, but it is also a rest to or a rest in the Lord. That must mean the rest of activity in specific worship of the Lord our God. There is release from the labors of the, day, of the six days, but it is also released to the contemplation of the glory of God. And so I would leave you with the, the, uh, the challenge. When you look at the fourth commandment, when you look at the Sabbath day, don't look at it as a bunch of do's and don'ts. Look at it as, how can I do what I do distinct from the other days? And what an opportunity this is for, for those of us that labor, right? What an opportunity to have a day which we still really have in this country for the most part if we really, um, if we really work at it, right? Um, but what can I do to set the day apart? Whether it's in walking through the woods with my children and pointing out things in creation. Lucretia and I love to hike in the Rockies. You can look at one wildflower and you can absolutely be amazed at the glory of God in his creation. Can you not? And you can speak to it to your children as you walk along the way, etc. right? As you take a bike ride, again, I'm not, I'm not, um, I would turn a little bit away from the, the Puritan position, although I respect it. Um, but I think there are so many things we can do on the Sabbath day to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. Any questions or comments? Yes, Jeremy. Very good. Right. Yes. And then the other one where you're doing it as part of your daily honor. Very good. Very good point. And it. This is like an opportunity for reflection on what it means for us. Yes. Very good. And and again, that's why it can't be a do's and don'ts. Um,
Yes, yeah. And the French Revolution tried to do that too, but go ahead. Very good, very good. Let's stand and pray. We need to close. James, would you mind closing us in prayer? obey your commands in a way that is not legalistic um, or um, antinomian. Lord, we thank you that um, you, you know the way and you show us the way and you call us to be yours and you want what is good for us. We pray that we will trust you and that we will keep the Sabbath. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. Y'all are dismissed.